If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of John. We're going to be starting today in the Gospel of John, chapter 10. We're going to be looking at a few different passages today, but our first is going to be from John, chapter 10. You know, one of the blessings of being part of a community group, we have community groups that meet in our homes throughout the week. Um, One of the great things about being a part of a community group is that the kids in the group get to know not only the other kids, but the other adults as well. Uh, Alexander, who I don't know if he's here today. Um, great. Oh, there he is. There he is. All right. Uh, my, my analogy was going to kind of fail at that point. Um, Alexander's been a part of our community group uh, for a long time. And my kids, particularly my two boys, Silas and Ezra, love Alexander. They love to wrestle around with him and play rough and be silly. And Ezra, my four-year-old, he he used to call Alexander the bad guy because anytime they played, Alexander was the bad guy who had to be arrested and taken to jail. And so he just would, he would ask, is that bad guy coming tonight, you know? Um, I think he actually calls him Alexander now, which is better, I guess. Um, There are a lot of Thursdays when Ezra, he would specifically ask if Alexander is going to be there. I could tell he, was look, he would look forward to Alexander coming. And then one day, seemingly out of nowhere, out of the blue, Ezra started getting obsessed with overalls. Him and Silas both were really wanting to wear overalls for some reason. They have some cousins who wore overalls, and so I thought, you know, maybe they just got that idea from them. But then one Thursday, I heard Ezra uh, say he wanted to wear his overalls because that's what the bad guy wears. And then it hit me. Alexander wears overalls sometimes. And so uh, Ezra wanted to be like Alexander. Um, He's like, you know, this guy comes, he plays with me, he's lots of fun, I want to be like him. He wears overalls, I want some overalls, right? Now there's going to be a connection here, stick with me. The last two weeks, uh, Chet's been preaching on our doctrine of Scripture from our church's statement of faith. The Redeemer Church Statement of Faith says this about the Scriptures. It'll be up on the screen. The Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments were given by inspiration of God. Therefore, all Scripture is authoritative, infallible, and without error. The Scriptures are the only sufficient rule for faith and practice. We spent the last two weeks thinking deeply about what it means for the Bible to be inspired by God, authoritative for our lives, infallible and inerrant. Today, I want to approach this doctrine of Scripture from a slightly different angle. Today, I want to ask the question, what did Jesus believe about the Scripture? If we're going to call ourselves Christ followers, those who desire to know Christ and become more like Him, then there should be no doubt that we would want to believe what Jesus believed about Scripture. Just as Ezra wanted to be like Alexander, it should be common sense for Christians to want to be like Jesus. That's what a Christian means. Christ follower, little Christ. So whatever Jesus' view of Scripture is, it makes total sense for us to adopt or to, to conform our view to that of Christ. 
If Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the one who never sinned, the one who maintained unbroken fellowship with his Father, held a certain belief about Scripture, then it should be automatic that we, his followers, would want to conform our doctrine of Scripture with his. Now, I, I hope that for most of us, this sounds like a very unnecessary topic for us to cover. I hope in one sense that's true. This question should not shock us. The answer to this question, what did Jesus believe about the Scriptures, should not shock us. In fact, most of you probably already have an understanding of what the answer might be. But please know that this question and the answer to this question have come under attack even by those who would call themselves Christ followers. Can we really know what Jesus believed about Scripture? All we can really know is what the gospel writers said Jesus believed about Scripture. We can't really know for sure what Jesus did and taught, right? These are things that we hear. There are errors and contradictions in the gospel accounts. We can't take them as 100% reliable and authoritative. These are the kinds of objections we hear over and over and over. We've heard them for decades, centuries. Now, we don't have time to address every possible objection that people have thrown at the Gospels, but please know that this topic is well worth our time today. It is good for our minds and our hearts to consider what did Jesus believe about the Scriptures. Now, before we get into specific passages of Scripture, I want to make some presuppositions very clear. Um, I don't know if you've been here the last two weeks or not, but I am presupposing, I am assuming what has already been preached the last two weeks, okay? So we're going to start in a very different place than where Chet started uh, the last two weeks. So here's a couple things that I'm, all, I'm coming to the text already believing these things. First, God has revealed himself to his people throughout history by inspiring kings, prophets, and apostles to write Scripture. They wrote exactly what they wanted to write, and they wrote exactly what God wanted them to write. When it comes to the composition of Scripture, we hold both of these things to be true, okay? So I am coming to the text of Scripture already believing this is God's Word, okay? Next, I am presupposing the Bible to be authoritative, infallible, and inerrant. Okay, that's what our statement of faith says. I'm coming to the text with that already in mind. I'm not going to try to defend that, okay? Chet has done a, a fine job of explaining that and defending it the last two weeks. And so I'm coming to the text with that already in mind. If you, if you have questions about that, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the previous two weeks' sermons. Now, why are these presuppositions important? It's because of this. In order to answer the question, what did Jesus believe about the Scripture, where do you think we're going to look? To Scripture, of course, right? Particularly to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because we believe that in the Bible we have an authoritative, infallible, inerrant record of what Jesus did and taught. So the plan uh, today is to look at three passages in particular. We could look at a lot more but quite honestly, the evidence is so overwhelming for what we're about to see that it would take hours to cover all the relevant passages. So we're, we're going to limit ourselves to three in particular. Let's begin with John chapter 10, starting in verse 22. 
At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father." Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Now, what is happening here? Well, the Jewish leaders approach Jesus. They're practically begging Jesus to tell them what he has already told them and shown them by his miracles. They want Jesus to tell them plainly that he is claiming to be the Son of God. Now, why do they want this? So they'll have a reason to kill him, right? They want him dead. If you can just say, just say you're God just so we can get this over with. Jesus says, look, I've already told you this, and my works bear witness about me, but you don't believe me because you are not among my sheep. Okay, so there's, Jesus is, he's explaining to them, look, my father has given me sheep. There's people who believe in me, and those people understand what I'm saying. You don't understand what I'm saying because you're not part of my people, but God has given me sheep, I'm bringing them to the Father because me and the Father are one. Now, when the Jews hear that, they pick up stones to stone Jesus. Why? Because they finally got the answer they were wanting. Jesus claimed to be equal with God. But then Jesus quotes from Psalm 82. Look in verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Now, what's Jesus saying here? His point is this. Look, Jewish leaders, you want to stone me because I am calling myself God. But in your own law, there is a psalm written by Asaph where Asaph calls wicked earthly kings, gods. Okay, Asaph, is, he's speaking sarcastically here. He says, look, you gods, you think you're so powerful. You're sitting, God sits, sits in the divine council with you. He's going to judge you. But Asaph uses the word gods to describe these earthly, wicked kings. 
If Asaph can call those wicked kings gods, he uses the word even sarcastically, then you should not be getting so bent out of shape with me when I call myself the Son of God. That's Jesus' point, okay? He's, he's just trying to shut this down and say, look, you're not going to be able to kill me over this. Because in your own law, this word is used to refer to wicked kings, okay? That's all Jesus is saying. The Jewish leaders have become so fixated on the word God, and they wanted so badly to kill Jesus that they had forgotten even their own scriptures, that this word is used in reference to wicked kings. But Jesus remembered. But that's not the point that I want to focus on today. What I want to focus on is that little phrase at the end of verse 35, and the scripture cannot be broken. Jesus, in his attempt to argue with his opponents, does what we all try to do at times. He's trying to establish some kind of common ground with them, right? And what is the common ground that Jesus has with these other Jewish leaders? They all believe that the Scripture cannot be broken. Now, let me be clear. This is not the main point of this passage. Remember, the main point is that Jesus... um, He doesn't want the Jews to get hung up on Jesus calling himself God because the Old Testament uses the same word to describe people who have no divine power. That's the point. But while making the point, Jesus is just assuming, he is presupposing the same thing that almost all the Jewish leaders of his day presupposed, that Scripture cannot be broken. And think about what passage Jesus quoted from when he said Scripture cannot be broken. It wasn't a passage from Deuteronomy or the Ten Commandments or anywhere else in the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, or even a more popular messianic psalm like Psalm 110. It's an obscure, kind of confusing psalm, Psalm 82. It makes some strange statement about wicked kings being gods. And yet, according to Jesus, it's Scripture and it cannot be broken. This word broken here can also mean loosen or destroy or release, right? The binding nature of Scripture is not in question. Jesus believed the Scriptures to be unbreakable. His opponents believed Scripture to be unbreakable. Now, the nature and character of Jesus was in question here, but not the nature and character of Scripture. Jesus and his opponents were on the same page. Jesus declares that Scripture cannot be broken. It's clear. It's so clear, there's not much more I can say about it. So we'll move on to our second passage. Turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Back a few Gospels. The first Gospel in the New Testament, Matthew, chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 17, Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them 
and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if there's any place in all the New Testament where Jesus had the opportunity to diminish or discard portions of the Old Testament as fabrications or myths or less than fully reliable, it would be right here, okay? Jesus is telling us specifically what he believed about the law and the prophets, These two terms, law and prophets, taken together was a common way for Jewish leaders to use um, when referring to the entire Old Testament. So we can be sure that Jesus is referring to the entire Old Testament. And how does Jesus view the Old Testament? First, not one iota and not one dot will pass away. Now, what is an iota? An iota is the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet. Up there, that's koinonia, that's a Greek word for fellowship or brotherhood. Uh, those eyes, what we would call eyes, those are, those are iotas. So you have the, the K and the O and the I, uh, that's actually an iota, right? That's the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. Um, Jesus says, not one iota will pass away. Now, we have to remember the Old Testament in Jesus' day existed in, in two forms, a Hebrew Old Testament and a Greek Old Testament, okay? The Greek version of the Old Testament was called the Septuagint. Um, And so it's a, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. It was translated into Greek. So Jesus here is referring to the the Greek Old Testament. He's talking about iota. Iotas don't exist in Hebrew. They only exist in Greek. And so he says, not one iota, right? Referring to the Greek Old Testament. Not one iota is going to pass away. What's a dot? He says a dot's not going to pass away. A dot is is an extremely small Hebrew marking that distinguishes similar-looking letters from one another. And so here we have several different letters of the Hebrew alphabet, a cheth, a hey, a daleth, resh, beth, kaf. And notice how similar all these letters look, especially the first two. Now, this, this, this term dot can also mean horn, Right, and what that means is a little, just a little horn on the end of a letter that distinguishes that letter from other ones. And you can see how just one little dot or one little horn distinguishes those letters one from another. That's what Jesus is referring to. Just that little mark on any of those letters that's going to separate it out from a different letter. Again, Jesus' point is clear. Not one dot, not one iota will pass away from the law and the prophets. So what's Jesus' point in saying this? He's affirming the authority of the Scriptures down to the smallest detail. He can't be any clearer. For Jesus, the law and prophets did not merely contain truth. No, according to Jesus, it was all true. Every letter, every mark. It's also important to note that this only makes sense, what Jesus is saying here only makes sense if Jesus has in mind the written Scriptures. Is Jesus referring to some kind of nebulous oral tradition? No. The words iota and dot only make sense if Jesus is referencing a written document, right? This means that according to Jesus, God's Word exists as a written manuscript in written form. 
It's something they could hold in their hands, something they can, that can be referenced again and again, something that had been copied and handed down from generation to generation. Now, what's a common objection we hear about this today? Well, surely the text has been corrupted, right? I mean, it's been copied. It's been copied over and over for thousands of years. It's like the telephone game, right? We all play the telephone game. When you start with a message and you pass it along, and by the time it gets around the circle, the message is totally messed up, right? So how can we trust our written manuscripts when when we we play the tele... We can't even get the telephone game, right? Well, first of all, there are all kinds of differences between the telephone game and the transmission of ancient documents. First, children are usually ones playing the telephone game, not grown adults. Second, the reverence and importance of the message would motivate copiers of Scripture to be more careful and intentional with their copying. Third, passing a message along verbally is very different and not nearly as precise as passing it along in written form. And fourth, in the telephone game, there's only one line of communication with no way to check with any, anyone else that your message is still correct, whereas in written documents, you have other copies you can check correct errors, things like that. But we don't even need all those reasons. Because here, clearly, Jesus believed that the text he had in mind had been preserved down to the details, down to every iota, every dot. He affirmed it all. So not one word, not one letter will pass away from the law and the prophets, according to Jesus But we also see from this passage that the validity of Jesus' ministry is directly tied to the truthfulness and authority of the Old Testament. Okay, if Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets, it is first necessary that the law and prophets be true, right? If the law and prophets are not true, or if the law and prophets are mixed with error, then what does Jesus mean when he says he came to fulfill them? Doesn't that call into question Jesus' entire ministry and his own view of what he came to accomplish? This is why our view of Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, is so important. Over and over again, Jesus pointed back to the Old Testament Scriptures in order to validate His own ministry. But if the texts that Jesus was pointing to are just a bunch of myths written by liars and frauds, then would that not destroy Jesus' credibility and minimize, if not totally destroy, His messianic authority? Do you see how our view of the Bible is directly tied to the ministry and identity of Jesus himself? This is not a secondary issue. What we believe about the Bible, the Scriptures, is central to the Christian faith. And make no mistake, you will hear people who call themselves Christians try to minimize the importance of the doctrine of inerrancy. To them, it's not a big deal if the creation accounts actually happened if Adam and Eve were real people, it's not a big deal if Noah and the flood is just an ancient myth that simple-minded people believed. It's not a big deal whether Abraham and Isaac and Jacob existed or they did the things they supposedly did. 
It's not a big deal whether Moses really wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. It's not a big deal if Isaiah wrote all of Isaiah or if a large portion of the Old Testament were written way after the events that they prophesied. But church, this was a big deal to Jesus. Look at verse 19. What does he say? Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. He affirmed every iota, every dot, in all of the law and all of the prophets. It can't be any clearer. Again and again, Jesus points back to the Old Testament to validate his own ministry. If we lose the Old Testament scriptures, we lose the identity of Christ. So from these few verses, we learn that Jesus believed in the authority of the Old Testament down to the very details. He affirmed all of the written scriptures, and he saw his own ministry as a fulfillment of those scriptures. Now, I want to take some time to show you a few slides just just to get a better, bigger picture of what I'm talking about. The first one is when Jesus says, it is written, okay? So when I say that Jesus points to the Old Testament in order to validate his own ministry and identity, here's a snapshot of every time Jesus says, it is written, in reference to an Old Testament text. I think it's 21 times Jesus says, it is written, and he's referring specifically to the Old Testament. Here's a few examples. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put your Lord God to the test. That's Matthew 4. Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. That's Luke 4. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That's John 6. So over and over and over, Jesus says, it is written, it is written, look, it is written, look at the text, points them back. Go read the Old Testament at least 21 times. Next slide. 14 times Jesus mentions the Scriptures, directly directly referencing the Old Testament. Here's a few examples. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, pointing them to the Scriptures? But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. That's Matthew 22, pointing them back to the Scriptures. I tell you this, that Scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. That's Luke 22. Again, over and over, Jesus points them back. Go to the Scriptures. Don't you know the Scriptures? Next slide. 20 times in the Gospels, Jesus makes reference to the law or the prophets. Here's a few examples. The passage we just read, don't think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. Matthew 7, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Luke 24, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Again, it's overwhelming. It's abundantly clear 
what Jesus believed about the Old Testament. These are just a few examples. But there's one more slide I want us to look at. Jesus affirmed numerous Old Testament events and people. Luke 11, Abel was a real individual. Matthew 24, Noah in the flood really happened. John 8, Abraham, who's mentioned 34 times in the Gospels. Matthew 10, Luke 10, Sodom and Gomorrah were actual places. Luke 17, a story of Lot and his wife. Matthew 8, Isaac and Jacob. John 6, manna from heaven. Matthew 12, Jonah. Matthew 24, Daniel and Isaiah. Luke 24, name in the Syrian. You see the list, right? These are all the words of Jesus referencing Old Testament events and characters. And never once is there ever a hint that it wasn't true. He just talks about it in a straightforward way, just like anybody else would. Church, I don't know how much clearer Jesus can be. Now, there's one last passage I want to look at before we close. It's found in Matthew 19. Turn over just a few pages to the Matthew chapter 19. I say this last because I think this passage undergirds everything else that we've seen so far today. Why do you think Jesus believed the Scriptures to be unbreakable? Is it because he was simply adopting the common theological position of his day? Was he just pretending to believe the Scriptures in order to gain a hearing with the people, but he didn't really believe them to be true? Was he just kind of buying into what everyone else thought so he could kind of work his way into the crowds and, and, you know, get in with certain people? Let's read Matthew 19, and let's ask the question, why did Jesus believe the Scriptures? Start in verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, again, Jesus is in an argument with the Jewish leaders. This time it's the Pharisees. They're trying to trip him up again by asking him a question about divorce. Now, our concern today isn't really to get the answer to the divorce question, although Jesus does answer it. Our concern is what Jesus says in verse 4. Look at verse 4 again. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, Jesus is quoting here from Genesis chapter 2. So what I'd like you to do is keep your finger in Matthew 19, turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, very beginning of the Bible. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. 
Let's start in verse 23, actually. Then the man said, who's the man here? This is Adam, right? The man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. End quote, right? Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, who said verse 24? Who's, who's talking in verse 24? It's Moses, right? Because verse 23, Adam is speaking. And we can see the end of the quote. And then look back at verse 15, just real quick. Look back at verse 15. The Lord God, or the Lord, yeah, God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. And then verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. So God is speaking, right, in this story. We have quotations from God. God is saying things. Verse 23, Adam is saying something, right? But verse 24, there's no indication that Adam said verse 24, or that God said verse 24. But when we go back to Matthew 19, what does Jesus say in verse 4? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, who's that? It's God, right? God made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. Who does Jesus attribute Genesis 2.24 to? Who's the author? Who said those words? The one who created them male and female from the beginning. God himself. Now, was Jesus wrong? Did he just mess up and forget, oh, God didn't say that, Moses said it, my fault? What about Matthew? Maybe Matthew just didn't remember it right. No, church, it's painfully obvious, is it not? We could go to other passages as well. Jesus believed the Scriptures because he considered them to be the very words of God. Jesus believed that the Old Testament was inspired and authored by God himself. That's why he pointed to it over and over again. That's why he considered it to be unbreakable. That's why he calls his disciples to obey it and warned his opponents that they would be damned by it. It's obvious. Jesus believed the Scriptures were God's Word. For Jesus, when Scripture speaks, God speaks. Now, what's the point of all this? Is this just an informational sermon? meant to simply impart some kind of knowledge about Jesus, one of Jesus' theological positions. Great, Jesus believed in the inerrancy of the Old Testament. Yay, now we know, right? Well, there's at least three things I want us to take away from what we've seen. First, do you view the Scriptures the way Jesus does? Are they unbreakable to you? 
Or do you find or try to find a way to kind of skate around them? Do you take the words of the Bible seriously? Or does it seem so far away, so far removed from you in time and space, that you just don't give it much time? What dot or what iota are you trying to loosen from God's Word? Maybe, some of you, at some point of doctrine, maybe you're questioning a long-held theological position, or maybe something that used to seem so certain to you doesn't seem that certain anymore. If that's true of you, then please, please talk to someone you trust. Come talk to one of the elders. We do not want you to live with uncertainty about the things that you have been taught. We want to deal with theological issues very early before your doubts turn to denials. Or maybe you're not struggling with a specific theological position. Maybe, you're one, maybe your struggle is one of maybe obedience to Christ. Maybe there are areas of your life that need to come under the authority and lordship of Christ. Are you living in a sinful, in sinful disobedience to Jesus in some way? Do you cling to his teaching and follow in his steps? If not, repent today. Commit yourself to the authority of God's word. Don't let sin take deeper root in your life. If you're here today, You've not turned from your sin and put full hope and trust in the one who affirmed the Old Testament, the one to whom all the Old Testament pointed to, the Messiah. Do that today. It's in this, in this word that we come to know Christ, we come to know about his perfect life, his death on the cross for our sins, and his resurrection from the dead. Because of that, we can be changed so first, how does your view of the Scripture need to conform to Jesus' view of Scripture? Second, I want us to take comfort, church. I hope this message gives us comfort. that We are in good company. The inerrancy of Scripture is not a new modern invention. You will hear, perhaps, other professing Christians say things like, well, belief in errancy is simplistic, or belief in errancy is enlightenment-driven, or it's a modern invention that only came about when science started to conflict with theology. Modern liberal Christians have said and will continue to say things to insult us, to demean our intelligence, to discredit and degrade us, to question our sanity, or worse to marginalize us like we're cute little children with our fairy tales and no one should take us seriously. How can we be so simple-minded, they might ask? Why are we so fearful of science and investigation and giving allowance for human error, they will ask. They'll try to make it seem like no big deal to first doubt the inerrancy of Scripture and then later, after a diligent search for the truth, and coming to a more reasonable understanding, our doubts will become denials, and our denials will become a disease that infects the bloodstream of the church, from doubt to denial to disease. But church, as we've seen today, the inerrancy of Scripture is not a modern invention. Those statements are utterly false. The idea of inerrancy, even though the word wasn't used, 
has been around since before the coming of Christ. We can be sure that we stand in a long line of faithful believers when we affirm the absolute truthfulness and authority of the Scriptures. Christ himself believed it. We do not need affirmation from so-called Bible scholars or language experts or textual critics, most of whom don't claim to follow Christ in the first place. We have the testimony of the Lord himself. We are not just in good company. We are in the best company. So take comfort, church. Christ believed that his Father's word was unbreakable. So should we. Now, the last word I want to leave you with is perhaps the most important. That's simply this. Church, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. I want to close with a quote from Kevin DeYoung, from whom I learned so much of what I'm preaching today. It's from this book, Taking God at His Word. Uh, my sermon, I mean follows the same format as one of the chapters in here about Christ and the Bible. But here's a quote that I want to leave us with today from this book. Christ's mission was to fulfill Scripture, and his teaching always upheld Scripture. He never disrespected, never disregarded, never disagreed with a single text of Scripture. He affirmed every bit of law, prophecy, narrative, and poetry. He never for a moment accepted the the legitimacy of anyone anywhere violating, ignoring, refining, or rejecting Scripture. Jesus believed in the inspiration of Scripture, all of it. He accepted the chronology, the miracles, the authorial ascriptions as giving the straightforward facts of history. He believed in keeping the spirit of the law without ever minimizing the letter of the law. He affirmed the human authorship of Scripture while at the same time bearing witness to the ultimate divine authorship of the Scripture. He treated the Bible as a necessary word, a sufficient word, a clear word, and the final word. It was never acceptable in his mind to contradict or stand above Scripture. He believed the Bible was all true, all important, and all about him. He believed absolutely that the Bible was from God and absolutely free from error. What Scripture says, God says. And what God said was recorded infallibly in Scripture. Church, this then can be the only acceptable answer to the question, what did Jesus believe about Scripture? It's impossible to revere the Scriptures more deeply or affirm them more completely than Jesus did. Jesus submitted His will to the Scriptures, committed His brain to studying the Scriptures, and humbled His heart to obey the Scriptures. The Lord Jesus, God's Son, and our Savior believed His Bible was the Word of God down to the sentences, to the phrases, to the words, to the smallest letter, to the tiniest specks. And that nothing in all those specks and all those books in his holy Bible could ever be broken. Redeemer Church, I would love for that to be true for us as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is abundantly clear. 
God, I pray that today we would be convicted, we would be assured more than we ever have, Lord, that we have a faithful witness. We have the testimony of Christ. We have your word with us. We can read it. Father, give us confidence in the books of the Bible that you have given us. Lord, as we spend time reading it and meditating upon it, Lord, I pray that you would change us. I pray that our love for Christ would increase. I pray that we would become more and more dependent upon you. We would humble ourselves under the authority of your word and not stand above it as those who judge it and make judgments about it and say what we will believe and what we will not believe. Father, humble us under your mighty hand today. May we view the scriptures the way Christ did. Thank you, God, for this unbreakable word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.